Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the COVID-19 crisis offers us an opportunity to create a better normal in Canadian long-term care facilities, Dr. Pat Armstrong joins us to discuss that. Ontario are going to expand its big-box retail blitz amid widespread COVID-19 rural violations. Labour Minister Monty McNaughton joins us to give us the details. And we discuss the conflicts of medicine, how they affect patient safety and health. Why are they wrong, and how are they being concealed, and what can we do about it? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're going to spend some time talking about uh, well, long-term care facilities once again because there is so much misinformation. We're getting inundated with reports back and forth about what's good, what's bad, and uh, the, 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 the level of care really is, is somewhat problematic. Uh, and one of the concerns here is the mixed messages we're getting from the government and even from some researchers and we're going to get into a couple of elements about how that actually works out a constant guest that we've had on the program many times to talk about this uh dr vivian stampalopoulos of course uh, says the ministry is not really in tune with what's really happening in long-term care facilities this is a tipping point we are at the crisis point and it doesn't help that we have a minister of long-term care who tries to put out this false image that everything is stable and everything is okay when everybody on the ground floor all the experts, all the advocates, the families are screaming that everything is not okay. We have a completely oblivious government that is just refusing to take more stringent action. And that's absolutely what is needed. We're all at our wit's end. I'm exhausted. I've been screaming for 10 months now. I'm tired. I would love if they just listened so I didn't have to talk anymore. Well, uh, I don't know that they're listening uh, because the problems seem to continue time and time again. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Pat Armstrong. Uh, Dr. Armstrong is a distinguished research professor at York University and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Uh, doctor, thank you so very much for joining us. Glad you could be with us today. Thank you for paying attention to this issue. Well, you've been doing it for a very long time and advocating for it. Just how frustrated are you these days, Doctor? Well, as you say, we've been saying this for a long time, and in fact, movements to reform long-term care began in the 80s in Canada, or even back farther than that, when the government mandated municipal homes because the for-profits weren't doing a good job at the time. So it's a long history and a long history of neglect. Well, is it getting any better? Uh, because I, the evidence I'm seeing right now says no. No, it's not getting any better, although we have to remember that some homes are doing fairly well, and a lot of that has to do with their staffing levels and the continuity in staff that makes such a huge difference to care. So it's not all homes, but certainly they're all at risk because of community spread, because of lack of communication, because of the fact that none of them have enough staff. Let me ask you about that, uh, because there's a sense of deja vu here, because we had this discussion back, well, almost a year ago now, during the first wave and the first lockdown, and uh, we were shocked, I think, when we saw the number of cases in long-term care facilities, as I'm sure you were, Doctor. Uh, and I had the premier of the program at that time, and, of course, as we all know, his uh, mother-in-law is in one of these facilities, I guess, in the GTA, and he vowed that he says, we're going to do something about it, we're going to fix this problem. And all the things you just talked about were some of the driving forces in this. Well, here we are a year later with a second wave, and I don't know that a whole lot's changed. No, it hasn't. They didn't do very much at all about staffing. They did say that you should only work in one place but they didn't provide enough full-time work or full-time pay for those people to ensure that that was the case. They didn't do anything about agency staff. They didn't do uh, inspections to ensure that the kinds of testing and training and uh, staffing that was required was in place. Well, I want to talk to you about that, and I'm glad you brought up the idea about uh, inspections because that's been a sore point for me uh, is in our discussions about this. Uh, the Ministry of Long-Term Care said in a statement earlier this year, and this is a quote from, from their statement, uh, compliance is assessed through our rigorous inspection program. That's their words, not mine, uh, which ensures that every single long-term care home is inspected at least once a year. And then they say there was a process in place for inspectors to report potential criminal negligence to the appropriate police to determine whether or not investigation is warranted. First of all, the numbers tell quite a different story. Not every facility is being inspected on a regular basis. Uh, as a matter of fact, the numbers have gone down considerably, and uh, we brought that to the Premier's attention. He said we're going to address that. Here we are a year later, and it's no better. No, I agree. The, 
the inspections haven't been happening in the same way. Now there there is a plan for rigorous uh, inspections, and we could raise questions about what they're inspecting for, because we can always look at those practices too. But we haven't been doing those full inspections in all of the homes, as uh, as you said. So, but part of the reason, uh, or part of the problem, I should say, is not just do you do the inspections, but what happens as a result of those inspections. We haven't seen anyone close down. We haven't before COVID seen the military called in or hospital or Red Cross called in, and yet there were many of these problems identified before. I mean, they mainly responded to verified complaints as opposed to doing full inspections so that they're reactive rather than proactive. And, uh, of course, many people are afraid to speak out because they, they think there will be retributions, and that's true of the staff, it's true of the residents, it's true of the families. So it's hard to base a system primarily on complaints and primarily on complaints that don't make much of a difference in the end. Well, I believe the number, and I don't have it in front of me, but I believe it was a single digit. I think it was all like six or seven inspections were done in facilities last year. The over, what, 600? And, and I don't mean six inspections per facility. I mean six right across the province. Right. That's that's horrendous. Because no, and, and, I've heard the same stories that you have. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the, the, the anecdotal information that we heard from the independent uh, uh, inquiry that was done on this uh, suggested that, look, it, there are horrendous things going on in some of these facilities, not all, but in some of them. And from what I'm hearing, the families are afraid to report them because they figure, you know what, if I do, they're not going to answer my mother's call bell anymore or they'll take their sweet time getting this over and that over. Uh, and, and, and they're very concerned about the ramifications of what could occur. Well, and in addition to not inspecting, we don't require verified data from the homes. We rely on their data to tell us about things like staffing levels and on their documentation to tell us what's been going on in the home. And I'm not sure that we can always trust that. We, we don't trust uh, most organizations without an accountant looking at their books. Why should we uh, trust the kind of data that is assumed to provide the kind of accountability we need without verification of those data? Uh, good question, uh, and I'd like to get some answers to it from the ministry, and they don't seem to be forthcoming. I know that they've got their own inquiry and their own panel, uh, which in itself has created quite a, pr a few problems and a few concerns, Doctor, as you well know, uh, because there is representation on that panel, on the provincial panel, rather, of course, uh, from private sector ownership. Uh, there is nobody uh, representing the frontline workers on that particular panel to give their side of the story, and that's a big piece of the puzzle that seems to be missing. Yes, and who knows best what's going on in the home <laughs> other than the, the staff? Well, and staff and families and the residents are the people who should be the source of the information. Uh, and surveys of satisfactions, we have long known those don't tell us much of anything, uh, the way the questions are constructed and, uh, and the way people respond very often in terms of satisfaction when you talk to residents about how, well, you've told me all this, but the satisfaction survey says that things are just fine. They, they'll say, well, I don't want to get my PSW in trouble because I really like her. Mm -hmm. so, so they aren't a, an assessment of what's going on to ask people multiple choice questions in a satisfaction survey, which is one of the things that the owners say indicates that they're doing a good job. Why isn't there a discussion about staffing? I know that they've addressed it, but very superficially, Doctor. And, and, and again, that seems to be one of the key things. We just did a segment last week uh, about another report that compared private sector versus publicly owned facilities, and they seem to draw the conclusion in their report uh, that, that, that it's even, that, you know, the, the, the precarious problems, the number of deaths, et cetera, are just about the same. Uh, now, some people are going to take exception to that, but when I asked about staffing levels, they said, well, that was actually hard for us to quantify because it's diff different criteria in different parts of the province. And I said, well, that's the problem, isn't it? Is that there is no provincial regulation. There are no provincial standards for this. So you pretty much do what you want. And, 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 and if, if, you, if that's going to be the way it is, that's a Wild West show. That's not adhering to, to a certain protocol that we know is going to maintain a certain standard at all of these facilities. Oh, I, I agree. We have to. It's pretty easy to set some standards. Uh, worked hours per resident per day of nursing staff or 
the number of PSWs and RPNs and RN per resident. Those are pretty easy indicators. Uh, we could implement them now, although we're starting to talk about four hours, and that four hours is so yesterday's number. It, it was a number started uh, more than a decade ago as uh, the absolute minimum. And since that time, the care required for people in long-term care has increased significantly. So Charlene Harrington, who's an international expert on these questions and was part of our research team, says now we should be talking about at least six hours per resident per day. And Ontario saying, well, in the next 10 years, we might get there in most homes. Uh, it's just inadequate. In terms of why, I think one of the, quest- the answers to that question is this is care for women by women. We don't pay, place much value on old women, and we don't place much value on personal care work that we see as something any woman could do by virtue of being a woman, which, of course, isn't the case. We even recognize now that women have to be taught to breastfeed. Why should we think that they naturally know how to bathe someone who has dementia and is frail and has other kinds of uh, health issues. Those, it's skilled work, but we haven't recognized it as skilled work. And it's very demanding work. When uh, I interviewed a human resource director in Norway who was in charge of a very large long-term care facility there, uh, she'd come from their equivalent of the CBC, and I asked her what surprised her, and she said, what surprised me? with how very hard these women work. And I asked her what she would do if she was in charge, and she said, if I was in charge of Norway, I'd pay these women what we pay the men who work on the oil rigs because these women work much harder. And until we recognize that and recognize that you can't bathe someone in this condition in six minutes, then uh, we're not going to address the staffing issue. But every time we bring this up, and and it was brought up in the independent review, as you know, and and it's been talked about a few times now uh, when they finally get around to talking about it at Queen's Park, uh, they keep kicking this down the road. I mean, the legislation that this government introduced, as you well know, Doctor, basically does set standards, which, and and I agree with you, I think they're standards from 20 years ago, but that's what they're they're shooting for. But they say, yeah, we hope to attain that within the next two to three years. Why? When Quebec wanted to do the same thing and endeavored last spring to say, okay, we need to ramp everything up. They did it in the space of three or four months. They just said, we're going to pay these people more. We're going to pay them to train them so that they know exactly what they're doing and how to do it. And all of a sudden, their problems haven't gone away, but they're way further down the road than we are. Yeah, we, and it takes political will and some commitment of money. Uh, the federal government has provided a lot of money, and uh, we're, that's not even getting to the personal support workers that are there now. Paying them more is important, and training a whole new group of staff is really important, and Quebec, as you say, has moved very quickly on this, and uh, BC is moving as well, Mm -hmm. but you also have to change the conditions of work so that when they get there, they can actually survive. I mean, the highest rates of absences due to illness and injury are in healthcare, and in healthcare, the highest rates are in long-term care amongst PSWs. And to get Uh, absence and get your sick leave. You really have to be sick. You really have to be injured. And, of course, the heavy workloads plus the speed at which they have to do this work really makes it a dangerous job. And that's leaving out, of course, the threat of COVID. Yeah, we haven't even talked about that yet. And and that's an interesting angle to this as well, though, Doctor, because a lot of the things we're talking about existed long before the pandemic started. Uh, The pandemic has really just shone a light and exacerbated what was already a rather precarious situation for a lot of them. That's absolutely the case. It's not like any of these problems haven't been identified before. COVID, of course, has exaggerated the problems, but... We know, for instance, that contracting out services and contracting out work to agency staff is a real problem. It's not just a problem in terms of infections. It's a problem in terms of continuity of care. Who who knows the residents? Who knows the other workers in terms of providing that care? Who knows even where to find the PPE if you're going into a, a place that you uh, haven't worked in before and you're going into a different place the next day? 
all of those are problems for the agency staff, but also contracting out the services. You contract out the food services. You're bringing another crew of people into the home to provide those that food, and the food is much less appealing in our experience than food that's cooked in the home. We have eaten in all of the homes that we have studied, and we've we've studied uh, for this particular project 27 over the in six different countries, and there's no question that food cooked on the premises at least tantalizes the appetite because Mm -hmm. you get to smell food. You know, it's no accident they tell you to cook chocolate chip cookies before you want to sell your house. It's because it makes you (laughs) hungry and makes you think about food, right? Older people need to be tempted to eat, and when it arrives, uh, one whole meal sitting on the plate, including your dessert um, and that it's all the same temperature, and it all looks the same. And in fact, in many places, we had trouble identifying what was on the plate. Um, you you aren't going to tempt people to eat. And one of the things the military reports made really obvious was the importance of food. And the same can be said about laundry and clothing. It's the last piece of dignity we have when we go into a long-term care home. And when you can't have your clothes or your clothes get lost or shrunk or disappear um, and or you don't even get dressed in the morning, which is happening increasingly under COVID, then uh, you lose yourself in the process. Well, which causes a, a great deal of mental stress, of course, uh, on the patients, on the families of the patients, on the staff as well, uh, that find themselves in these precarious positions too. Uh, the only way I guess we're going to get any action on this, Doctor, is to keep talking about this, and we're going to do that on this program, and I know it's happening right across the country as well. It's uh, it's a problem that needs to be addressed by governments, and uh, there have to be some standards uh, that have to be set and, as you say, policed and maintained. And, you know, I, I keep hearing, for instance, that, well, you know, the problem with a lot of the privately owned ones is they tend to be some of the older facilities and they don't have all the, the infrastructure in place. Well, they should. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say, you know, I, I, I'm not against for-profit, but I don't think necessarily for-profit looking after our, our elderly is, is necessarily the best thing for us to happen here because their concern in, in profit, for-profit organizations is the bottom line. And they're going to look at that bottom line and say, do we really need to spend $300,000 for a new HVAC system here? We can get away with what we've got. Well, that's not the kind of care I want for my, my loved ones, and I don't think anyone does. No, I agree. Why didn't they put their profits into improving the facilities? But it, it also, if you compare them to the municipal homes, a lot of the municipal homes in the city of Toronto, which I have studied, um, are four bedrooms, and they have had much better outcomes than uh, the profit for-profit homes. At least that's the general pattern. Some, not all of them, but mm-hmm. but some of them certainly have, like Castleview Witchwood. That was uh, there was a star story about this recently. Is a huge complex. It's a it's a tower, and it has mostly four bedrooms, and they have done very well in terms of COVID. So, uh, so much so much more to talk about here, Doctor. We're a little tight for time this morning, but uh, I want to stay in touch with this. I, I appreciate the great work that you have done for many, many years on this, and uh, we'll certainly stay in touch and uh, uh, keep shaking the cage here until we get some action from the government. Thanks so much for this today. I will, and thank you for covering this issue so well. Take care. Dr. Pat Armstrong, of course, uh, from uh, York University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As promised, inspectors fanned out this past weekend over the GTHA uh, targeting big box stores to ensure that they were following COVID-19-related health and safety rules. Global's Tina Trujanti has the details. Fifty inspectors made the round Saturday and Sunday and checked in with over 100 stores permitted to keep their doors open during the lockdown. 31 violations were found. The most common were linked to screening of customers and staff, masking protocols, and physical distancing. 11 tickets were issued along with the same number of warnings. Overall, 70% of the retailers were found to be in compliance. Labour Minister Monty McNaughton says this won't be the last blitz. More are coming in an effort to get the virus under control, and they will be expanded to include the whole province and more workplaces, including those in manufacturing and distribution. Those found violating the Occupational Health and Safety Act can be fined up to $100,000, while corporations can can be fined up to $1.5 million per charge. Tina Trajani, Global News. Well, let's talk about the program and, and how effective it's hopefully going to be over the next little while. And to that end, we're pleased to welcome to the Bill Keller Show, Monty McNaughton, who is the Labour Minister for the Ontario Government. Mr. Minister, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. 
Well, Bill, it's uh, great to be on your show this morning, and I uh, hope you have a, a great week ahead. Well, we're hoping we have a great couple of weeks ahead and start seeing those numbers go down so we can get back to some sense of normality. But uh, we're in the second wave right now. It's pretty tough. Uh, we saw the numbers over the weekend. Uh, 70% compliance uh, is the number that I've seen here. But uh, that's not good enough for you, is it? Not at all. I mean, I think um, uh, at this point in the pandemic, every business knows exactly what they need to do to keep uh, workers and uh, the public safe. Uh, look, um, the, the numbers clearly are uh, going in the wrong uh, direction in terms of uh, overall uh, COVID numbers. So we just need uh, businesses and supervisors and workers to be more vigilant today than at any point during this pandemic. Uh, what are you hearing anecdotally, and, and what was the, the the motivation for for the inspection process? I because I've heard on on the program really since well since about March fifteenth of last year, uh, during the first lockdown, that uh, that there was a lot of concern about non compliance in some of these facilities. Uh, I've only been in a big stock box store once since then, uh, the, the Costco out here in Ancaster, and it was back in the summertime when things were kind of you know relaxing a little bit, and I was shocked at, at you know the number of people that were crowded in there like sardines, especially at the cash register areas. Uh, is, is that the same sort of story, kind of story that you've been hearing over the last number of months? Well, look, um, we're focusing on uh, inspecting uh, any type of workplace that's open uh, during this uh, lockdown period. I launched this big box blitz uh, last Thursday um, to go into big box stores across the GTHA uh, on Saturday uh, and Sunday. We know that you know a lot of people go to these places uh, to shop. Um, we went into 39 uh, big box stores in Hamilton. Uh, we did uh, well over 230 uh, inspections overall in the GTHA. The three uh, biggest issues that we found uh, during this inspection blitz this weekend, uh, we saw that the big box stores, uh, some of them weren't complying with the pre-screening measures to you mm-hmm. know, check symptoms of uh, customers and staff uh, going into the big box stores. Uh, there were issues with uh, masking and people uh, following the masking protocols and as well uh, some issues with physical uh, distancing. Uh, but you're right, 72% uh, compliance uh, overall, but it's simply uh, not good enough for me. Well, when you say the, the, the screening process, let's talk a little bit about that because, I mean, I've, I've heard that from a lot of folks. And uh, there's a series of questions that you're asking that uh, there's sure to be somebody at the door, obviously, whether it's a grocery store, a big box store, any other store, exactly. Uh, LCBO, I guess it, it, it covers all of these situations here. Uh, are you finding that, uh, that the stores themselves are concerned about that? And, you know, that's one staff person that has to be out there. Uh, you know, they're worried about that cost. They're worried about whether or not people are actually paying any attention. Uh, how, how strict are they allowed to be? Because one of the concerns I've heard, Minister, is that, you know, the, the government's basically asking us to do the enforcement and we don't have the wherewithal to do that. Well, look, we put out uh, more than 200 resources for uh, businesses, including big box stores, um, uh, early on in the pandemic. Uh, these businesses and, and workers can go to Ontario.ca forward slash COVID safety. Um, there's checklists to follow. There's uh, posters and tip sheets. I mean, every single thing that uh, businesses uh, need to know, uh, they have to do the pre-screening. Uh, again, they have to be better than they've ever been uh, during this pandemic. We're in the middle of a, a second wave. The numbers, uh, quite frankly, are uh, frightening. And I expect them uh, to pull up their socks. Um, these big box stores have uh, the resources uh, to do it. And uh, uh, clearly, you know, they're, they're open uh, during this uh, lockdown. And it's my job as minister uh, to protect uh, every single worker that's going into uh, any type of uh, workplace uh, during this pandemic. Minister, i got to run something else by you because I've received a lot of feedback about this over the last couple of days after uh, the Premier made uh, the announcement about the lockdown and, and the, the parameters for the lockdown. And that had to do with the big box stores and especially, well, we'll talk about the, the two that were mentioned more often than not. It was Costco and Walmart. Uh, large corporations, uh, and the fact that they're also selling things as well as groceries. I mean, I can go and buy a pair of jeans at a Walmart as well as a, you know, a, a can of beans if that's what I want to do. Uh, and there's a concern, as you've heard, I'm sure, from some retailers that's saying, look, that's an unfair playing field, uh, that other jurisdictions like Quebec and B.C. have limited uh, places like that to say you can't sell those products. All you can sell are grocery items. What was the discussion like uh, with your government to make the determination to go this way as opposed to the way that Quebec did, for instance? Well, look, certainly uh, COVID-19 hasn't been fair to uh, any single person, not only in Ontario, but literally uh, across uh, the world. 
Um, my viewpoint is, uh, as Minister of Labor, Training and Skills Development, uh, the, the government uh, came up with an essential uh, business list. Um, uh, of course, you know, selling groceries and, and pharmaceutical uh, products is uh, essential. And mm-hmm. my job is to keep uh, workers safe uh, going in uh, to uh, any type of uh, job at any point uh, during the week. And uh, you did mention it in the beginning, but we are uh, expanding um, uh inspections were you know going into uh, distribution centers manufacturing facilities uh, agri-food businesses like processing plants i mean we're literally in every type of uh, business across the province uh, during this 28-day period to uh, keep workers safe and, and the public at large but with that in mind i guess the concern that i've heard from some small businesses and i'll go back to the example of clothing uh, you know they they can go into walmart and they can buy clothing uh yet that small business person who may be on main street in small town ontario or of course even on bloor street in downtown toronto uh isn't allowed to have any shoppers in there right now it's only curbside and you, you can't buy clothing like that and they say look at that's giving the big box stores a huge advantage over us yeah look i i come from a small business uh, background myself i know um, yep. in, in a small town uh, I encourage everyone to go and, and shop at your local uh, small businesses, do that curbside pickup, uh, support them by uh, getting products uh, delivered. We have to do everything we can to support our small businesses. But look, the, the sooner we get these numbers down, the sooner uh, we can get every business in this province uh, open and, and get the economy firing on all cylinders again. And, and as a small business person, I'm sure you can relate to this because we, in our anecdotal uh, assessment of this as well, uh, we found uh, that small businesses were probably, for the most part, more compliant with the, the standards you had set than some of the larger stores were. And, and there was a lot of more adherence to that about if it was only going to be three customers or four customers in the store at any one time. Uh, consumers seemed to be okay with that. There was much more enforcement about that. Uh, and, and the question, I guess, that I'm hearing from an awful lot of people is, well, why, why are you putting these restrictions on smaller businesses uh, when we're the ones that were really playing by the rules? Well, look, I've certainly said that throughout this pandemic. Uh, most businesses have stepped up to put in place the, the health and safety protocols to prevent COVID-19 from uh, entering the workplace. Uh, we're going to continue to go after those uh, bad actors. In fact, um, five of these big box stores and their corporations uh, had uh, fines issued against them uh, this weekend. There's still a number of investigations uh, going on, but we're going to continue uh, every single day uh, to have literally hundreds of inspectors out. We had uh, just over 50 dedicated to this weekend's blitz, but we'll continue um, to protect the health and safety of workers and, and to visit uh, all types of workplaces. Oh, so that, okay, that's that's a different twist to this that we had not heretofore understood. That You're going to be doing this all the time. This is not just a weekend occurrence. You're sending inspectors out every day to different places. Well, we did a targeted blitz uh, this weekend, uh, sure, just over yeah. 50 inspectors. But keep in mind, we have literally hundreds and hundreds of uh, inspectors across the province going in uh, to workplaces. I do want to make one point uh, clear. Uh, any worker out there uh, is able to refuse uh, unsafe work if they feel that their uh, health uh, and safety is in jeopardy. Uh, they can refuse that work. They're protected by law. And I encourage any worker, if they feel unsafe, to call our toll-free number. Uh, it's 877-202-0008, and a Ministry of Labor uh, inspector will uh, respond. But, uh, again, I just encourage uh, workers and employers to just really work together uh, as best as possible to get through these difficult days. Good advice, Minister, on that, and I hope people take advantage of that if they feel as if they're in a precarious situation. But would a complaint like that or a series of complaints like that, uh, would that trigger an investigation into that particular facility or an inspection into it? Absolutely. I mean, we review uh, all of these uh, complaints uh, that come in. Um, uh, again, you know, a lot of places of work have a joint health and safety committee. I remember um, in, in our family business, uh, I started a joint health and safety committee. These uh, committees are really, really important, especially in times uh, like this. Try to resolve that dispute uh, internally uh, within that place of business, but by all means, uh, don't hesitate to call the Ministry of Labour. Uh, and, and we want people to be aware of that as well. And I want to talk also, if we could, about uh, some of the other programs that your government, uh, in cooperation in some cases with the federal government, uh, have offered uh, uh, financial uh, assistance to an awful lot of people that might find themselves in a situation like this. Uh, and I know you heard this, Minister, even dating back to the first lockdown about a year ago now, uh, from some people that were playing in well, things like grocery stores and things of that nature that we're talking about right now, uh, that were concerned about their exposure and their feeling like this. Uh, 
uh, and there were support programs. Uh, do you see uh, th those continuing for a length of time now as long as this is going on? Absolutely. Um, two things. Uh, the Prime Minister and, and Premier Ford uh, signed a deal uh, in the summer. Um, so what, what the province is doing is we're protecting a job. So anyone out there who's impacted by COVID-19 and self-isolation or quarantine, uh, they can't be fired for that. Uh, but the federal government um, has uh, a sick day a program where uh, you can get up to $500 a week if you're at home. Uh, furthermore, uh, the federal government also has a program uh, if uh, a mom or dad are out there in their home because uh, the kids are off school, there's financial support. So uh, we know about 80,000 uh, people in Ontario are participating in the uh, sick day pay and now or have participated uh, in that. So we need um, all workers to know that these financial supports and the job protected leave uh, is in place now. When the announcement uh, for the lockdown was made a couple of days ago by the Premier Minister, there was a hue and cry uh, that I know filtered to your office at the Ministry of Labour about paid sick days and that there should be a regulated program. Do you feel that what you have on the books right now is going to be sufficient for that? Well, look, I, I've been on the phone uh, for the last week uh, with the federal uh, ministers encouraging them to ensure that that uh, sick day pay gets out uh, as quickly as possible because I think that's uh, the, the boost that workers need. But... Uh, as I said, 80,000 workers are participating in that uh, federal program. Um, it's administered by uh, the, the Trudeau government. Um, and again, the provinces are responsible for job-protected leave, and uh, the federal government has uh, the paid sick days. Look, these are obviously unprecedented uh, times. I'm uh, encouraged that uh, the provinces and the federal government have worked together to uh, put financial supports uh, in place for workers. And, of course, it's costing you know, both levels of government and taxpayers billions and billions of dollars uh, in, in supports for people. Let me ask you about that and, and the, the cooperation that goes on, too. And you know, having been in politics for a while, Minister, that uh, the relationship between provincial governments and federal governments, no matter what political stripe, can be acrimonious uh, an awful lot of the time. Uh, are, you, are you comfortable with the, the level of cooperation that's been established and hopefully is maintained uh, over the, this past little while between the federal and provincial government, especially with the Ontario government, obviously in our situation, uh, to make sure that there is a, 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 an easy transition here from one program to another and that the funding's going to be in place? Absolutely. I mean, I, I work closely with my federal uh, colleagues. We know uh, the Premier and the Deputy Prime Minister have a, uh, a special uh, relationship, but it's, it's so, so important. I mean, if you look at uh, paid sick days, uh, for example, the federal government has, uh, you know, really given Ontario workers uh, over a billion dollars uh, in supports. We stepped up with uh, lowering hydro bills uh, during this pandemic and uh, putting out uh, financial uh, checks to moms and dads who have kids uh, at home. I mean, there's been cooperation at, at both levels of government, and, and we're both working together uh, really to get uh, assistance out the door uh, to, to workers and small businesses. When uh, the Premier announced the uh, the lockdown here and, and, and the parameters for that lockdown, uh, he mentioned, uh, I think it's about February 11th or 12th, I think it is, is the date that uh, uh, this is going to expire or could be extended, I guess. What sort of numbers uh, is the government looking for, Minister, to suggest that, okay, maybe we can you know relax things a little bit or, or as the case might be, extend this program? I mean, is, is there a, a certain ballpark that you're looking for here to say that's good, okay, no, we're not, it's not working? Well, I can't speak to a, a specific uh, number, but um, definitely we have to be in much, much, much better, uh, a much better place than we are uh, as of yesterday. Anyways, I haven't seen the numbers uh, for today, but we continue to take advice from uh, the doctors and the chief medical officer of health, um, and those are being reviewed uh, on a on a daily basis. Um, so, we'll have more to say, obviously, uh, getting closer to that date. Uh, you, you talked about the Blitz this past weekend, essentially around the, the, the Toronto-Hamilton area, the GTHA area, uh, and, and very successful, obviously, because you've highlighted a number of deficiencies that were in the program. Uh, what are the plans for this, extending this to a province-wide basis, or do you feel that's even necessary? Absolutely. We'll be in big box stores uh, in, in every community uh, across the province, but we'll also be uh, highlighting and focusing uh, the other initiatives that are uh, happening, including, as I said, 
you know, distribution centers and factories and uh, agri-food businesses like uh, processing plants. Um, we work with uh, local public health units, uh, local municipalities, um, to determine which workplaces we need to go in. But we also take um, concerns heard uh, by the public at large, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to launch this uh, big box blitz, because we know uh, there are certain uh, workplaces and businesses where people uh, gather, and uh, we want to ensure that uh, businesses are being held uh, to account and that they're keeping uh, people safe. And obviously the uh, the concentration on the, the GTHA at this, I, I think, is understandable. Uh, when you look at some of the numbers over the last couple of months, I guess, really, they basically are identified as some of the hotspots in the province. Uh, when you look through uh, the, the GTA, certainly, and, and Peel and, and Durham regions, and extending now, as you say, through Halton and into the Hamilton area, uh, it seems to where those numbers are getting higher than they are in other parts of the province that you would concentrate on them first. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we did that. But I come from uh, southwestern Ontario, and the numbers are, are growing uh, really in, in most communities. I, I think of my riding uh, of Lambton-Kent Middlesex, which is between London and Chatham and Sarnia. Yep. I mean, every hamlet, every village, every town now has uh, cases of uh, COVID. And, of course, uh, we see the situation in, in Windsor-Essex. The numbers are quite high. So it really is a, a problem facing uh, the majority of this province. And that's why my message to, to every big box store, to every business out there, just take this seriously. Do more now than you've ever done uh, during this pandemic. We all have to be more vigilant, including uh, managers and supervisors and, and workers and the public at large. We have to work together to finally defeat COVID-19. Minister, thank you so much for the time today. I really do appreciate it. It was encouraging to see uh, the number of inspections that were made and uh, with the uh, the anticipation of this being a program that's going to be expanded. Hopefully this will be one of the tools uh, that's going to reduce the, uh, the number of new cases that are coming up. Thanks so much for this. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Take care. That's Monty McNaughton, the Labour Minister for the Ontario Government, talking about the uh, the blitz going on in big box stores and larger stores right now to make sure that, that there is compliance, because that wasn't necessarily the case, at least from what we've heard anyway. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get into something that's on a lot of people's minds these days because of, uh, well, the, the work that's gone on, for instance, for a vaccine for COVID-19, and, and this is ongoing. I mean, we can specify that, but there's so many other things happening in medical research these days. But what happens if there's a conflict between medicine and how they affect patients' health and safety and big business? Because let's face it, we've always heard that expression, big pharma, and the impact that it can have and the lobby that it has on politicians. So how much of an impact does that have? And is it putting our health and safety in a precarious position? Uh, to talk about this, I want to bring in a, 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 somebody who's actually been on the program before, who uh, I'm so happy to have back on the program, especially in this time when there's some concern about vaccines and the implications of it. Uh, Dr. Nancy Alvarez is a physician and a professor of pediatrics and medicine and public health sciences at the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, Bill, thank you very much for having me. It's terrific, terrific. I've been listening to your show. I'm so glad you got Pat Armstrong on and mm-hmm. she and her colleagues and all these, I mean, I'm not an expert in long-term care, but Vivian Stomatopoulos and all the long-term care families are going through this nightmare. I just was so happy you profiled it. I don't know if there's another more important issue right now. Thank you. Well, they're all intertwined, aren't they? I mean, long-term they care, really pediatric care, every, each and yeah. everything, and, and especially the doctor with the work that you're doing. Uh, and, and that's why I wanted to focus on that. I was fascinated by the essay that you did uh, back, I guess it was in December, uh, how John LeCarrie changed my life. Uh, and this, right. yeah. I got to tell you, Doc, this is a, this is a movie script, okay? Uh, you know, this is <laughs> this is life imitating <laughs> art because the, this very theme that that you've talked about here that LeCarrie actually approached you about. I mean, they've made movies and TV shows, written books about it, like LeCarrie himself did uh, yeah. after the discussions he had with you, and, and that resulted in actually one of his best sellers. Well, they were all best sellers, uh, but the Constant yeah. Gardener. I'm sure people have read the book and they say, "Oh, really? Is that where that came from?" Maybe if you could, before we get into the into the concerns themselves, maybe a little background on how that happened. Sure. I was doing a trial in children at SickKids, and things came up, problems with safety and efficacy that I believed I needed to disclose, including to the Research Ethics Board. And the CEO of the company, who was partly funding the trials bill, said, you're not disclosing, and I'm suing you for all legal remedies if you say anything to patients' parents or the scientific community. And the, the difficulty was that that time, the university, my academic institution, uh, the University of Toronto, were seeking a very large donation. 
And so combined with the pressure from pharma and the pressure from the academic, I was forced out many times, lost my job several times, got it back several times, spent hundreds of thousands of hours and millions of dollars in terms of defending myself against this finding, which um, we can discuss in a minute. But it, it's why I feel like I'm not an expert, but an expert witness in these conflicts of interest. Because when I was going to telling John LeCarré, I said, oh, it probably isn't what you really want to hear. And he said, this is exactly what I don't know. How do they threaten? What do they do? Do they slip a letter under the door? In my case, the CEO slipped a letter under the door and said, you'll be served with all legal remedies if you say anything. Now, it's really dramatic, right, Bill? But this happens a lot. This, I mean, this doesn't happen. You get threatened and, and you get into a fictional account. But people are tailoring their findings to funding. There's no question. And so the problem is you read a study about drug X and I, as the author, say, oh, I took money. And you think, at least I think, and I'm sure you think, and a lot of public thinks, well, does that really mean that the uh, results are accurately represented? Because did you, even if you do disclose, and I want to say something about disclosure in a minute, mm-hmm. you're still pressured by reporting what the guy wants you to report, or the, the, it doesn't matter if the, the CEO wants you to report. And do people... You know, do people back down? Of course they back down. They back down all the time and say, well, we'll, we'll make it sound another way, or we'll do a subgroup analysis. We'll make the data look more favorable than they are. You know, I'm just one story in many, many stories. In fact, in many, many people who try to do what I did all over the world, there are stories like this. A lot of those stories are buried. Well, and, and they're, they realize the problem. Yeah, go ahead. No, and so, you know, and then people say, well, I disclosed it. So you've got a lot of these meetings where people stand up and they show two slides saying I take money from company A, B, C, D, E, and F. And then they say, well, I've been really open about this. But, you know, you know that most of the studies are funded by pharma, so it's not a real no-brainer to say, of course, I was funded by pharma to do these studies. Disclosure, I'm not saying disclosure isn't important. I mean... It's necessary. Canadians who were sold a bill of goods on the opioids would probably have liked to know that some very prominent doctors were getting money to promote those opioids. But it's insufficient. It's insufficient, you know, to say, oh, I just told everybody about that. So, you know, you have an issue where you don't know. That's, that's the problems with conflict of interest. That's why we need to talk about removing pharma or big business from research. But we also have to look at uh, am I going on too long? Because I'm not no, no, not at all. Another, I, I don't want to even say solution. I want to say an approach would be. Let's say I'd sat down with, and, and he said, "This is not what it shows," and he lined up doctors to say that I was wrong. And what the solution would have been was to say, "Let's publish all the data, every single blood test, every single liver iron concentration. Let's put them on the web, and then educated doctors, educated public patients can say, oh, yeah, that did double.'" That, that value did double. It was supposed to go the other way. All the data would be, and there's a lot of approaches now to try to get open access to data. And that would prevent the sort of partial interpretations and the um, sort of twisting of the statistics. And there are, there are a lot of really common examples of this, not just mine. There's a great study published about 10 years ago that showed that you look at the FDA submissions, the Food and Drug Administration looks at these studies, and they had data, but your doctor, Bill, my doctor, doesn't have those data because the studies are are, are selectively published. And in fact, the ones that actually are unfavorable are published as favorable. So our doctors are not trying to deceive us. Then their offices reading the literature thinking, This drug is going to be 90% effective. But in fact, in this case, it was only 50% effective when you looked at all the studies that have been done. This is really affecting patient safety. This is really important. I I have to tell you, one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you today, and I'm so glad you were available to talk to us today, uh, was we were doing a report about, to go back to our initial thing, long-term care facilities, uh, that basically said that privately run and and publicly run are just about the same. The stats are the same. And I looked a little deeper, and I realized that the study is actually sponsored by one of the major private sector long-term care owners here in the province of Ontario. And I'm not casting aspersions on the doctors that did the research, but I'm saying when there's big money involved in this sort of thing, 
uh, even the facility in which you're working is going to be influenced by that because they need the money. I mean, governments don't give the money that they should for funding here, so they're looking at corporations to do this. And, and the question we need to ask ourselves, and, and you have been asking it, doctor, is how much influence, if at all, do that, does that money have? And we've heard examples of this time and time and time again, where they say, look at, you know, have you ever heard of a CEO from a major drug company say, boy, I saw your report there and you really slammed us on this, but I guess it's good that that com- information gets out there. Of course they're not going to say that. They're going to say, if you keep this up and if you publish this, uh, you know, the check gets bounced and you're not getting the money. That's all there is to it. Oh, Bill, I couldn't have said it any better. It's just perfect. We've got to, we've got to immortalize that paragraph because exactly. And the problem is that you don't know. Absolutely. These of course not. And the doctors oftentimes don't know. No, that's true. They don't see all the data. See the point above. So you're absolutely right. You don't know. I don't know. So there's this uncertainty, and there shouldn't be this uncertainty with patient safety, with drug safety, with vaccine safety, with long-term care. Whether or not I agree, we don't know. Because the power of the influence is so great. And the reason maybe John Le Carre was interested in this story is it had gone on for 20 years. It's still going on. It probably went on for longer than that. I'm, I, I'm still mm-hmm. questioning why thalidomide was put on the market. You know, we, was there studies that showed that there was going to be long-term damage? I don't know, and you, we, I don't know if we'll ever know. Oh, I'd love to come back and talk about that. I can only talk for about four or five hours on that one alone. <laughs> um, it's, um, it, well, actually, it was prevented by the FDA in the United States, but we can talk about that in, yeah. in, in another, another. You're absolutely right, and that's the problem with conflicts of interest. It, it's, the doubt surrounds us, and we don't trust. And trust, especially in the times of vaccines, is super important. You've got to know, okay, yeah, there were some side effects. Here they are. And people would say, oh, okay, wasn't in a million people, wasn't even in 10%. I get that. But we don't know when there's, it's shrouded in secrecy, when it's shrouded in money. Uh, and that's the problem. And, 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 you know, there are no aspersions to this particular study. But um, it probably always is better in research to do things at a very large distance. I'm, I'm the person who was taking money from the drug company CEO, but in my case, I can tell you it wasn't easy to declare those problems. And just as you said, there's no CEO who says, thanks for pointing out that I'm going to lose a lot of money when I don't license this drug. There's no university that has ever said, oh, we're going to back our researcher on this one. None, never one. People think I'm a big naysayer, and I say, okay, show me an example where the academic institution said, hey, you can't threaten our researcher. There's no one. What- no, but invariably how this does get resolved, if it ever does, and as you mentioned, it oftentimes doesn't, uh, is, is through legal action, where somebody actually finds out that, hey, wait a second, this is not uh, you know, the, the be-all and end-all that everybody had promised. And, and I guess one of the better examples of that is oxycodone that came out as a miracle yep. drug. And, you know, and I, I've, I've, well, our listeners know this. I mean, I've had two knee replacements, so I'm, all, I'm well-versed in, in pain and joint replacement and, and the medications oh. necessary. Uh, but nobody talked about the addictive qualities of oxycodone when they suck this out there. And, and look at how that has wrecked so much havoc in our society as a result. A hundred percent. It's all involved in informed consent, and you can't be informed if anything is hidden. Another example, you know, this is exactly, this is exactly the point, is that legal action will uncover it. But, you know, that's years later, after damage has been and done. And expensive. And expensive, really. I don't want to tell you how many lawyers I had at the height of this fight, but... Uh, um, and, you know, part of the stuff is, is because people do sue, and then expert witnesses who are, who are inclined like us to question these practices are called as expert witnesses, and they realize books written about this, the illusion of evidence-based medicine, because people talk about evidence-based medicine, but the evidence is what the drug companies want us to know, just like opioids. But the problem here is, is where do we find a balance on this, doctor? I, I, I don't want our discussion to, to make people so paranoid that they're not going to take any medications, they're not going to take the, the right. COVID vaccine, yeah. they're not going to do this. Uh, and, no. and there are people that are like that, you know, the conspiracy theorists that are saying, aha, yeah. they're all into this. And I don't want to suggest that everybody in, in the pharma world is, is yeah. evil, uh, but it's a factor. And, and how do you sift through that? And how do you find that balance to say, okay, we need to be skeptical, but at the same time, uh, you know, there could be some merit in this too. I mean, people like yourself, I uh, try to find that balance. It's the 64,000. It really is true because absolutely this, I mean, it's, it would be very damaging if people went off their medications like these studies have been inadequate or, or declined to get a much needed vaccine. That would be 
an important wrong. But I think the only way to do it is to make it more open and to say, you know, yes, this person experienced this side effect, and you did too. Okay, that's two. And lining it up. And people, paradoxically, would be more trusting if they saw what everything had, everything that had happened. It's what you don't know that you worry about. And I guess open access, uh, Bill, I think having ensuring that when you publish a paper, I just did about a year ago, I published every single um, item that I referred to in the paper so that people could say, oh, I think you interpreted this wrong. They didn't, but they could have. You know, I think you, you, you analyze this wrong or the, the, the statistical analysis is wrong. That's the way to go to make these journals open access. Nobody kind of gives you 72.1% of their data. They have to show it all. Well, and that's the only uh, transparency. I mean, that's a word that we try to use an awful lot of the time. But you know, in, in the interest of full disclosure, if we can get the good, the bad, and the ugly, and make up our own decisions, or let let our physicians yeah. make up their their own minds about this as to whether or not exactly. it's effective, because I, I mean, we could be here until noon today listing, uh, you know, medications like that. Ritalin comes to mind. There's another one because they, they're always characterized when they come on the market as the wonder drug. This is going to solve this problem. Uh, and, and there may well be some, some, you know, verification to that. But at the same time, okay, what are the, what are the downsides to it? And do we ever hear that story or the entire story? Exactly. Okay, so we we'll should stay on until noon and discuss this, Bill. Those are fun things to I'll try to run it through my boss. I see if we can do this. It's, it's an important <laughs> discussion, though, Doctor, and, and that's why I want people to be fully aware of this, uh, that, uh, that, you know, when we see a study, and, and I know even in this business that I'm in for the last hundred years or so, uh, you know, you get a report from somebody and says, oh, let's, let's talk about this. Uh, do the research and find out where was the report, who funded the report, uh, because oftentimes that can have an influence on what's going on. And, and uh, one of the greater concerns, and this is very much of a companion piece to the discussion you and I just had, is how corporations are, are slowly but surely moving into university research on a larger scale, whether it's oh. Huawei with a number of universities or Big Pharma or others. Uh, and they're yep. throwing all kinds of money at universities, and it's much-needed money. Uh, and you have to ask ourselves, okay, is that going to influence the way in which that research is done? And it does. I think those are the questions to ask. It's, it, you know, there was a shift in the late 80s, just as I was starting these trials in, in, at SickKids, where I was surprised how much corporate respect there was. Of course, it, the respect is for money. The respect sure. is for, as you say, the cutbacks happened and people, university. I, I always kind of think, well, you know, we need to think about whether the public would want to be taxed more for honest research. I, you know, it's, it's difficult because we have to recognize the problem that these things are eroding the, the, the evidence base and they're making, they're making things more difficult to interpret, to be sure about drugs. So, you know, you've, you've said it all, really. I mean, it's, it's one of the most important things, if not the most important consideration in research today is if you're generating research, you want to be doing an honest job and you can't disclose everything if you're threatened and you have to face years of threats and and, and lawsuits. I, I, gosh, I wish you had more time. I, I was, I, from a literary standpoint, I wanted to ask you how, when you finally read The Constant Gardener, to, to see Laura's Trials and Tribulations, uh, mm. to see yourself in a book, that's got to be something kind of special, too. Oh, I, I thought I was, I opened it up. I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't read it. No, and of course, I thought no. I was this really nice person. But then I was real, realized that I was the witch with the bee in Chapter 18. It was really funny. It was pretty <laughs> sadly accurate, very sadly accurate. Well, I'm going to reread it now. You've got me because it's been years ago since we did this. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program. I think, as you I mentioned, too, in the interest of full disclosure, your father was the greatest pediatrician of all time and practiced in Hamilton for many, many years here. Oh, uh, so there's a lot of really people that are going to recognize the last name and understand that uh, the excellence runs with the work that, uh, that the Oliveries oh, do. Thank you, Bill, and that, love to Hamilton. Thank you. Thanks so Thank much, you. Nancy. Good talking Thank with you, you again. Much. Dr. Nancy Oliveri, of course, uh, from uh, SickKids and uh, Professor of Pediatrics and uh, Public Health Science at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.